I will speak to you in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Good morning. When I was living in New York City and attending seminary, seminary nearly 15 years ago, I found myself surrounded each and every day by some of the country's most historic and beautiful Christian churches. None of them are quite as historic, I suppose, as the ancient churches and cathedrals in the UK and in Europe. But for a country that is just now approaching its 250th birthday, some of our oldest cities have religious sites and structures that are just as beautiful and awe-inspiring as those older churches and holy sites. Whenever I would have visitors who'd come to visit me in New York who were even the least bit interested in seeing something other than Times Square, I would take them out to see some of my favorite places, which always included churches in that great city. After we'd been to visit the historic chapel on the campus of the General Theological Seminary, where I was blessed to worship and pray two to three times a day for my entire three years in seminary, Then we would go out to visit other places and there'd be at least two churches that I would make sure I included in my city tours. Luckily for me, both of these historic and beautiful churches I grew to cherish during my years in seminary were located on that same stretch of Fifth Avenue, just a few blocks south of the east side of Central Park. The first church is one of our grandest of Episcopal churches in the country, St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, and the other is one of the most important Roman Catholic cathedrals in the nation, St. Patrick's Cathedral, located just down the street from St. Thomas and just across from historic Rockefeller Center. St. Thomas Episcopal Church on Fifth Avenue is a church well known today for its incredible organ music, its world-renowned choir of men and boys, and its high church Anglican worship still based on the old prayer book from 1928. In addition to all of that, the church exterior of St. Thomas is one of the most beautiful examples in that city of the late 19th, early 20th century Gothic revival style designed by renowned American architect from that period, Ralph Adams Cram. And with all of that, St. Thomas, in my opinion, also exudes a real palpable holiness. It has a stunning carved reredos of Christian saints, including saints of the American church, which extends all the way up the wall behind its high altar. And its dark ambience of lighting makes you immediately, when you walk into the building, feel compelled to find a wooden pew, pull out that kneeler, and kneel in prayer. And from the moment you enter the church, Talking loudly in such a holy place seems inexcusable. I always found that if you stopped inside, even in the middle of the work week, when there were no worship services taking place or no clergy to be seen, people visiting that church were always silent or whispering to each other. For me, St. Thomas Fifth Avenue contains every example of the best of our Anglican Episcopal heritage and ecclesiology. As for St. Patrick's Cathedral, in many ways, it could not be any more opposite than the quiet grandeur of St. Thomas just up the street. 
St. Patrick's is a cathedral that many of you know covers an entire city block in midtown Manhattan from west to east and from north to south. To be at St. Patrick's is to be in such a large open area that it feels absolutely acceptable no matter what's going on to speak in full voice over all those tourists who are crowding around you. Still, no matter how loud St. Patrick's can be and no matter how far away you can feel from that great central altar or that gorgeous lady chapel at the far east end of the cathedral, there's still that same palpable feeling of holiness throughout that space. Once you make your way through the crowds and into one of those small side chapels, kneeling in prayer and perhaps meditating on the beauty of the icons, the images, the stained glass windows and the crucifixes, it has that ability to eliminate just about everything else that is around you externally. Both of these great Manhattan churches, in my opinion, are two of the central sites of Christian holiness in that great central borough of New York City. All those years ago, I loved to take family and friends and visitors to each one of them. And to this day, anytime I'm able to be in that city, I will try to find a moment to stop by to just sit in the beauty of holiness and to pray. I've also been very blessed to have made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in my life and to have put on a yarmulke and stood among Orthodox, Reformed, and Hasidic Jews at that great Western Wall, which still contains within it the huge original Herodian stones that once formed the very foundation of the second Jewish temple at the time of Jesus. When you're at the Western Wall today, all you can do is try to imagine what that great temple must have looked like all those centuries ago. And even when you walk up to the Temple Mount itself and you see the brilliance today of the Al-Aqsa Mosque at one end and the stunning gold that surrounds the Dome of the Rock in the middle, if you're a Christian, you can't help but believe that the grandeur and beauty of the Jewish Temple must have been even more incredible than what's there. The description of the temple in the Bible and the love and the adoration the Jewish people experienced within it and still cling to with it must be somewhat like the way I myself feel today when I'm in Manhattan and find my way back to St. Thomas Fifth Avenue or to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And it must certainly be like how Christians can feel about the great Chartres Cathedral in France or a beautiful St. Paul's Cathedral in London or maybe even our own National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And I suspect that for all of us in this church today, our holy space that is here at All Saints with our wonderful Christus Rex cross hanging above the marble altar and the creation window and so many deep memories of weddings, of baptisms, of funerals, and of worship and prayer together brings on that same sense of awe and inspiration as well. <clears throat> this strong, beloved feeling about a holy side is what must have been rushing through the minds of the disciples this morning in that reading we just heard from the Gospel of Mark. For when they walk out of the temple in Jerusalem, they too are caught up in the immense size, iconography, and beauty of that place. And surely they thought Jesus would feel the same way as they felt about the holiest side of their Jewish faith. 
Yet this morning, Jesus decides to lead them and us in a different direction to reveal something that is more important and more eternal. For when one of the disciples calls out to Jesus and says, look, teacher, what great stones and what large buildings. Jesus comes back with a very different observation. Jesus says to his disciples, do you see these great buildings? I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, where Jesus is going here, I believe, follows suit with the direction all of our readings take from this morning's scripture. We find its connection with our first reading we heard from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, a book that carries with it the appropriate description of apocalyptic. Certainly this chapter from the Gospel of Mark can also be read as an apocalyptic set of verses given to us by Jesus. Now, most of us think of the word apocalyptic or apocalypsis or apocalypse, I mean, appropriate so as end of time narratives within the Bible. And certainly this passage from Mark, along with the passages I'll be preaching on in just two weeks on that first Sunday of Advent, speak to that kind of apocalypse at the end of time. But as much as we always tend to read apocalyptic texts in the Bible as simply foretelling some terrible future event to come, the word apocalypse from the Greek apokalypsis actually refers more precisely not just to the end of time coming, but to the removal of something that is covered, to take away a veil in order to reveal something that has been hidden underneath now. There is no question that the great temple the disciples are amazed by this morning will one day, as we all know, be torn down just as Jesus proclaims, with nearly every stone destroyed and pushed over. So, of course, when Peter, James, John, and Andrew hear this, the first thing they want to ask is, hey, Lord, when is this to be? And what will be the signs we should be looking out for that all these things are about to be accomplished? It's a good example, I think, of how we human beings have really always been from the beginning of time. If we believe something bad is going to happen, we want to know exactly when it's coming. And we want to know what we should be on the lookout for so we might be able to hunker down and be prepared when it arrives. But brothers and sisters, if the very word we use to describe these signs and warnings is apocalypse which by definition means as much about the unveiling and the revealing of something we have missed now, then perhaps we might should go back and read the apocalyptic text again. We may find that we need to connect less to the foretelling of the future and pay more attention to what they are indeed uncovering right in this moment. The key, I believe, to understanding the message Jesus was revealing to his disciples all those years ago at the great temple in Jerusalem is the same for what Jesus, I believe, is still revealing to his disciples right here and right now. Jesus is first revealing that there can be nothing, brothers and sisters, in this physical material world that will not one day collapse and disappear. 
For if that great temple thought by all the Jews in ancient Israel and Judah at the time of Jesus to be the most beautiful and holiest place on earth could be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD and then completely replaced by the Islamic world several hundred years later, then there must be nothing we love today that could not also disappear and go away as well. The beautiful St. Thomas Church on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue, the magnificent St. Patrick's Cathedral down the same street could one day completely disappear. Even this church we love with all our hearts and souls can one day be no more. And if our great buildings and temples can fall away, how much more should that be reminding us that the most important of holy temples for each one of us as Christians, our physical body, in which God resides in the Holy of Holies, which is our heart, will also one day pass away. This body that holds our heart and soul must return to the dust and the ash from which God created it in the beginning. That certainly feels apocalyptic. But the great uncovering, the real great revelation, I believe, in the Gospel of Mark this morning, the good news, brothers and sisters, for the disciples 2,000 years ago and for you and me now, is a continuation of the message. For Jesus says, of all these things that we should be on the lookout for, for those things that cause fear and the worry of death, for wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, earthquakes and famine, all the things that bring death and destruction, they will not be the end for those who follow Jesus. They are simply, as Jesus says, the beginning of birth pangs. For Jesus knows that he will be the human incarnation of the divine, that will sneak up on death and will finally overturn it. That through the hardwood of the cross, he will tear down the temple which is his body and then in three days build it back up again. And for those of us who follow Jesus, who choose to be his disciples, we too have the same promise. That even when we ourselves must face the end, when we must face our own apocalypse, when we must face death, that what we can hold on to is that it is but a transition, just a birth pang that leads to new life that is eternal. For brothers and sisters, death has no dominion or power over us through Jesus Christ. And even though everything physical must fall away, the revelation of Jesus, that which is unveiled to us on that first Good Friday, followed by that first Easter, is the promise of a new life that turns death and all it robs of us in this world upside down and on its end. It is a message, a revelation for us to find a way to put God above everything else and then trust that God will lead us so that one day we too may join the song with the psalmist this morning who says, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel my heart teaches me night after night. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not fall. My heart, therefore, is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body also shall rest in hope. For you will not abandon me to the grave, nor let your Holy One see the pit. You will show me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thanks be to God.